On this episode of Resi Week, we talk about Sony's 4K TVs and their show-stopping $300 4K Blu-ray. Sharp is investing $7 billion into LCD manufacturing in the U.S. And ISC was this past week. It was awesome. Tim was there, and he's going to tell you about it. All this and more on this episode of Resi Week. The network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. Resi Week episode 54, Praying for 8K. This week's episode of Resi Week is brought to you by Access Networks and Peerless AV. This is Resi Week. Welcome to Resi Week. This is your weekly wrap-up of all the latest news and stories for the residential AV industry. I'm your host, Matt D. Scott for avnation.tv. And today, I'm pleased to be joined by Delia Hansen. She is the VP of Sales and Marketing for Clara Controls. How are you? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I think it's a little warmer where you are. Yeah. It is, yeah. yeah. Like 75. Oh, it's rough. And really sunny. Really sunny? It's Yeah, yeah, it's not 75 here. It's 30. It's fantastic. Then we've got another gentleman who is in the sun, Joseph Piccarelli. He is the CEO of Rosewater Energy. How are you, sir? Good afternoon. I'm great. How are you today? I'm doing fantastic. I'm assuming you're having nice weather in Fort Lauderdale as well. Uh, if you define 72 and sunny with no cloud in the sky, I would say yes. Yep. Break of my heart. Hey, Tim. Yes, sir. Please tell me you're, you got something for me. <laughs> uh, I'm, uh, it, yeah. Uh, it's, 30 it's degrees, be, overcast. Yes. Yeah. My people. St. Louis, you know. Gray. Yay, Midwest. Gray. <laughs> <laughs> That, if you don't know him, that's Tim Albright. He is the founder of AV Nation, this lovely little network here. That's what they call me. Yeah, pretty much. All right, ladies and gentlemen, let's kick this off. This comes to us from Residential Systems. Sony is going to be broadening its 4K Ultra HD base, as well as they're bringing a 4K Blu-ray player. Uh, this, is, this is kind of big news because they just continue to uh, reveal more and more 4K models and defining them as being ready to ship, which is always fun. But the biggest news, if I can make that that statement, is that they are announcing uh, the suggested price of a $300 4K native Blu-ray player, Yay. which is supposed to be in stores in March. What makes this entertaining is there's not a lot of, uh, shall we say, cost-effective uh, native 4K players on the market. So that's kind of a big deal. The other deal uh, would be the fact that they are shipping uh, a bunch of not only their, their 4K uh, TVs, but they've got a, quite a few that have HDR10 as well as Dolby, Digi- Dolby Vision in them. Uh, Delia, let's start with you. What does this mean for dealers going forward as far as knowing that they now have a 4K device that they can offer at a, at a reasonable price as far as the, the source material. Well, this is an interesting one because I actually got into a little Twitter debate with Hagai from uh, Network Access Solutions a couple of weeks back talking about 4K and the availability of it. And I'm like, yep, 
this is coming and it's coming faster than we all thought it was. And he's like, no, it's going to be, it's going to be years before they've got content and the ability to spread <laughs> it in a way that it's going to be distributed to the market where it's affordable. And then literally three weeks later, they start dropping these $399 price points for sources. I saw crazily enough, I think I saw a commercial for a 4k Vizio TV starting at eight ninety nine. Mm-hmm. Yes. So I saw that recently. So, um, it just means uh, you don't have much time left to make a ton of money on the brand new latest greatest <laughs> resolution and we better start praying for AK. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Joe, to follow, to follow that up if you can. As, well, as, I just started praying for AK, I don't know. <laughs> Dear well, Lord, I've been a very good girl this year. Will you please bring me 8K? <laughs> now, to be fair, uh, Japan is already running some 8K. They're also over the already, air. They're already yeah. That's what I'm about to say. Don't jump. This isn't your Sorry. show, Tim. Go back to Fridays. <laughs> this is Monday. This is my show. I'm still lagging. Japan already has OTA 8K that they're 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 slinging around Japan. Obviously, we will take a lot of time to get there, Joe. But with the vast, you know, scope of this new Sony line that they now have, and and arguably, you know, you can bicker back and forth over whether Sony is the leader in video, it still has that brand cachet. With the, the scope of this line, does it mean that 4K has officially arrived and we are not only there but we're now looking forward past 4k okay i'm going to take this question apart um, no yeah. all at once as <laughs> 4k officially arrived i think it has opened the door and walked in and i i think that you know as i talk to my non-industry friends who always want to impress me with their industry knowledge and how much they know about TVs and audio and video. I'm now hearing more and more about 4K and a lot, much of that has to do with the price being driven down, much mm-hmm. to most of our dismay. Um, but I think what we're really seeing, and, and this is, takes it a little somewhat tangential to our conversation, there was this gigantic battle for mindshare between Samsung and Sony. And in flat panel TV, Samsung kicked their butt. I mean, some of us are old enough, well, maybe I'm the only one old enough, to remember when Samsung was a giveaway brand. It was never anything more than a giveaway brand. And now they've taken the number, they took the number one position in television. The 4K proposition and Sony's attack on pricing, I believe is their method of regaining the prominent position in, in display devices and, and a battle for the home for the image device in the home. And we're going to see this battle continue between the two of them. And and unfortunately, Delia, if your prayers are answers, 8K will get cheaper faster than 4K did. Wow. Those people are just going to fight it out because this is about market share. Because the real mathematics of this is at some point, somebody's going to say the market levels out. There is a replacement market. It's so many millions of units a year. And I want my 40% share because then it's a calculable business. So, here, so here's my follow-up question to you. If that is the case, and we are getting to the point where that happens, how quickly do you see 
people skipping the 4K transition. Because when we had 720, there were a lot of people who held off. Yes. Right? And they, even before we knew 1080p was coming, they still held off knowing that something better was down the road. Since we're already hearing noise and since we're already, you know, seeing devices start to prototype out as far as for the worldwide market, are we going to have a larger percentage of people wait for 8K and skip 4K? Yeah, I, I, it's an interesting question. My prediction would be that once you see 8K become commonplace at Cedia and amongst system integrators, which is really a, the sort of spearhead of the marketplace, you will see then a large percentage of people who are sitting with 1080p who are thinking of going to 4K just skipping. Okay. And I think sure. that's because that's, to me, that's where the critical mass is met. You know, mm -hmm. all of a sudden you've got system integrators, custom installers going in, pitching 8K to the uh, prime influencers in, in their respective communities. Then 8K becomes sort of this little buzz. Oh, do you have 8K? Not that anybody knows what 8K means. And then people go, okay, I'll wait. Because to most people, 1080p is a very satisfying experience. So I, I think that that's what's going to happen. Very good. Tim, you were, you were obviously at ISC, um, but more importantly, did you get a chance to get in the, get in the Sony booth to, to look at anything? And if you did, what was their booth driving? Well, their booth was driving primarily their, their OLED um, technology. Now they did have a number of other displays as well. And, and some of them were 4k. Uh, they had the same one they had at Cedia, uh, back in September. Um, but their, their, one of their most predominantly displays uh, was their, their version of OLED, the partnership they have with LG. So at the show, they were more focused on the technology opposed to the resolution. Yes. Yeah, yes. So do you see that to be the driving factor going forward? Uh, for Sony? No, yeah. I, I, I don't pretend to, to understand what Sony's driving factor is anymore. <laughs> Uh, and yes, it's a snarky comment, but it's honestly, it's, it's kind of true. Um, I, I, I'm a, I'm, I am, I'm a, a fanboy from the first time I had my Walkman of Sony. Right. Um, but I'm not sure uh, what that is. It's yeah, I know. You're um, <laughs> never mind. I had one. It was amazing. Thank you, Delia. I appreciate that. I had here. one. It was yellow actually. Uh, that was the, had the walking one. top. What was it called? What was the sports model called? The anyway. Sportsman. Uh, well, yeah, Sportsman. Um, but they have come along the last few years, and I, I go back to this a lot. Three or four years ago at CES, they showed this it was 100 and 110 inch, called it Crystal LCD. Mm -hmm. And nobody really knew what it was. You couldn't get close to it. You couldn't, you couldn't really quite see it. And that was the only time they ever showed it. Now, we've done enough trade shows and, and you guys have done enough trade shows as well. You know exactly how much it costs to put on one of these trade shows. They spent, you know, two, three, four hundred thousand dollars for this one piece of technology that they showed once and then said, Oh, well, no, you know, nobody ever, nobody really kind of grasped onto it. So let's screw that and, you know, scrap that one and let's go for something else. Um, I'm a big fan of OLED and I'm excited. I was just, I'm excited by the news of their partnership with LG, but I'm not holding my breath. Right. Um, I, I, you know, Sony's going to do what, what they're going to do, what, what makes most sense and, and where they're, they're going to get the most traction 
the quickest it feels like, right? And that's why I mentioned the Crystal LCD. They didn't get a whole lot of traction out of it, so they said, screw it, let's go to something else. Um, there's, there, it almost feels like they're looking for a quick fix. <laughs> you know, what, mm-hmm. yeah, we're, we're gonna throw something on the wall and if, if a bunch of people jump on it, cool, let's, let's go that direction. Um, so, you know, yes, they're moving into 4K and they're one of the very first projector manufacturers to do 4K uh, mm-hmm. like four years ago at this point. Um, so obviously the resolution is important to them. Uh, do I think they're gonna jump to 8K? Probably not, you know, not, not necessarily today or tomorrow, um, but the, the introduction of this low cost, and I do say low cost, I mean, 300 bucks for a 4K physical media player is not that much um, when you consider the, the very first Blu-ray players were somewhere in the neighborhood of a grand or $1,200 US. Well, um, and keep in mind that the comparable Panasonic model in Canadian dollars is 899 Yeah. So, so that's what $3 US? <laughs> Wow. He made the joke. I was going to be let serious it go, about Joe. it. Just I couldn't let it go. It's um, actually 450. 450. <laughs> 450 and a cup of Tim Hortons. Um, but I should the, do but a show with Timmy's. But, but not, not, not to be silly here, but, but having a physical media player that's under 500 bucks, let's say, right, um, is significant, right? Well, and, it hits. And, and having the content. Is is really important for for me, you know, as somebody who used to be a tech manager, and that was one of the things that drove our technology advances. Is what technology is available um, to, and, and what content is available in that technology. Well, and I must say, um, just to wrap this up before we move on, is you know, you guys hit the the nail on the head. Having a three hundred dollar, and think about it, it's going to start at three hundred. Within a couple months, it'll be two hundred. All right. <laughs> So, but having something that is arguably an affordable product, an affordable piece source for people to use and and obtain, that makes it a mass market product, right? Whereas currently, very few, like even even our clients, very few clients are going out and buying an Oppo or buying the Panasonic player because it's a thousand dollar player. They're just not lining up to buy them when they can get a 4K Roku. Or they can stream 4K Netflix from the embedded, in this case, Android OS. They're not buying the physical media because the players are so expensive. We may see a drive in Ultra HD discs because you do get that great experience. You're not dealing with bandwidth. You're not dealing with anything else. We may see that kind of resurge a little bit now that we have affordable players on the market. Can I ask a question here? Of course. One of the things I run into, and I'm curious if if it is commonplace, a lot of 4K installations are suffering from noise problems, noise induced either by poor quality power, mm-hmm. kind of just faulty installations. Is any, anybody else seeing that around? It's pretty rampant. Pretty rampant. Um, as for any of you who don't know, I own Omega Audio Video and we are integrators and installers. Um, it, is, it is rampant. Uh, it's not as simple as just buying a cheap cable and plugging it in and hoping it works. Right. 4K is such a uh, data intensive, especially now that they've added HDR. It's such a data intensive product that you do see, we are kind of starting to see the gap widen between guys that play in this realm and guys that actually know what they're talking about. And gone are the days of, or I shouldn't say gone, but essentially we're no longer seeing people get away with 
putting inferior products in and putting in cheap cable and not putting in power conditioning and all those other things and still achieving reference level uh, endpoints because it is just such data heavy uh, products. So yeah, you do see it a lot. And depending on who you're buying, you do see more failures uh, in cable than you would have thought. (laughs) It's it's interesting where I ran into it uh, very frequently. A couple of weeks ago, I was uh, visiting some potential customers out in Las Vegas. And one of these customers was a uh, specifier for sports books in the Mm -hmm. casinos. And all the sports books are transitioning to 4K video. Mm-hmm. And he said, what is problems? Because the wiring in the hotels is generally old and mm-hmm. there's so much of it. There's a lot of interference between the wires and, the, and in the pipes. And he said, the noise problems are just outrageously bad. Yeah. Outrageously bad. So, yeah, and it's, it's something that will bring to mind um, the fact that no longer can you comfortably just go into a, a project and spec reusing existing. Right. You know, we kind of know that that's not always best practice anyways, but especially in a facility where there is a lot of stuff, you, you really can't guarantee you're going to get a, a proper end product without going in and replacing all of that. So yeah, you're, you're right on with that one, but let's move on to a article that comes to us from strategy.com and our good friend, Ted. How are you, Ted? Uh, this is about, excuse me, Sharp has plans to build and invest seven and a bit, uh, 7.14 billion into a LCD manufacturing plant in the US. Now, as you read through this, this has uh, some interesting notations on what is behind this, namely the ability to not only, dare I say, placate uh, the new government down south in the U.S., uh, but also the ability to get closer to one of Foxconn's largest clients in uh, Apple. Tim, Mm -hmm. do you see any validity to that kind of concept that they're they're doing this just to get closer to Apple? Uh, Yeah, I could see that, um, you know, a little bit. Uh, I think what it is more than anything is is Sharp did a, spent a lot of years, the last few years, not having enough money to do much of anything. Uh, right, they were treading water. Um, we did an interview with with one of their uh, their UK uh, general managers um, at IEC last week, and um, I asked him if, if this was some of you know some of it was hey, we have Foxconn money now, so let's go spend it. And some of it is that, right? It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's somewhat snarky, but it, it is honestly, it's true. It's, it's now that, you know, it's almost like somebody who's held their breath for the last few years, just kind of making it by. And now they have someone willing to invest in them. And that is exactly what it feels like, is, hey, we have somebody who believes in us, but they believe in our product so much so that they bought it. And it's a company that has enough bankroll to do things like open up new manufacturing, to do things like, partnering and deepening the relationships with folks like like um like apple do you with with a deal or or an announcement like this is there any possibility that part of the decision behind doing this and getting a, a manufacturing plant in arguably their number one market is there any possibility that this is designed to you know not only get closer to some of their suppliers 
uh, or, or sorry, their, their uh, companies that they work with, but also to shorten the production time, get stateside, be able to turn over product faster. Interesting. Um, yeah. I, I thought about that one. I wouldn't normally think of this as a play to reduce time to market. Um, manufacturing processes overseas are very well laid out. There are no questions. Once you have a spec, a production sample, your firmware checked, it is a very simple mathematical equation to when you're going to receive your first products. Uh, the pricing is incredibly intense and competitive. So I don't see these as being either a go-to-market faster strategy or a competitive pricing strategy. It has to be something else. So either we're trying to move to a more American products built by Americans or, you know, that kind of feeling and having an increased value to that proposition and then not fighting on price as much. I, it was a very interesting article to read because we when's the last time that a, a flat panel was produced outside of the major manufacturers overseas? Well, even, even Mexico. Like, yeah. They can't afford to do it in Mexico, let alone the U.S. I don't know. Eight? No, maybe eight. At least. Somewhere around there. So I, I, I read this article and I was really, really intrigued. I, it's a very interesting proposition. It does not make for less expensive product, that's for sure. No. So, Joe, given, given both aspects of that, what, in your mind, what would drive Foxconn to actually do this? If coming to the U.S. means more taxes, more regulations, higher prices to manufacture. Higher wages. Higher wages, higher everything. Because we, we, we've, we've talked about Foxconn for years, about why they've been so successful is because they, I, I, I won't use the term I want to use, but their labor force is just a labor force. That, that's all it is. They live on site. They work on site. They don't do anything else. Why would they think that investing $7 billion in the U.S. to make a manufacturing plant makes any business sense at all? Uh, I, I've thought about that one at great length. And aside from what Delia had to say about the possibility of branding uh, a, an American-made product, if you start looking at the most modern production facilities, the number of people who actually work in those facilities continues to get less and less and less and less. Mm -hmm. so the amount of labor in one of those factories, the labor costs continue to diminish. So if they can build the most modern of their factories on U.S. soil, the one area where it is more and more difficult to lower prices is freight. Mm -hmm. Shipping oh. something over the ocean by airplane, by boat, there's not a lot of efficiency. It costs X number of dollars to put something on a boat and get it across. So there may be an ability to really save cost. I know it sounds bizarre that we could produce something here in a cost-efficient fashion, but if you can get the factories down to where labor is an absolute minimum, requires an absolute minimum number of people, 
then you have the ability to actually be very cost competitive having the product built in your largest market. Well, and arguably and you that- you could move into a state like New York, who's offering the first 10 years free. Tax free. Wow. Yeah, and, and then of course, you know, when you're talking about taxes and regulation, our new administration is claiming that taxes are going to be significantly diminished and mm -hmm. regulations are going to also be diminished. So there may be some preparing for the future or at least a future time view that's uh, corporate tax rate goes from 35 to, to under 20 and regulations uh, will be diminished in terms of the way you can deal with gap accounting you know, a lot of Dodd Frank is going to go away, so there can be all kinds of benefits to be gotten here. Well, in addition to that, you've got you know the new administration. I'm not going to say starting a, a trade war, but definitely looking more uh, towards the a, a U.S. centric and the U.S. manufacturing centric trade policy, where there have been overtures of putting more tariffs and and more fees on the products that are coming into this country. You know, finished products. Right. So there may that may be viewed as a cost savings is to go to get around those perceived uh, increases. Yeah, I, you know, with the, the, the saber rattling over the border tax, if there's an imposed border tax, that really hurts everyone. Yeah, that's a problem. Especially me. Don't forget. Well, I'm, yeah, Matt, Matt's I'm in Canada, here. so. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it, no. it, it can be a. It, I, I found it to be a very interesting move because if. If indeed you can minimize the number of laborers required to run a plant, then freight is the big cost. Well, and when you look at the fact that, you know, they can essentially build auto, you know, automotive parts and, and fully final assembled cars with minimal human interaction. Exactly. To be able to do it on something like computers or TVs or any sort of electronics is not a far stretch. And, and we know they already do it fairly heavily. Uh, overseas like that. But to do that here, when you look at the manufacturing cost of anything and you exclude the, the human labor proponent, it doesn't really matter. Right. Actually, it becomes cheaper in North America because fuel costs here are cheaper than they are anywhere in the world currently. Exactly. So, exactly. so that'll, be a, that'll be a very, very interesting move to watch and see where they go with that. Uh, let's wrap up today with some stuff that comes to us from CE Pro. Uh, it's Julie Jacobson's kind of walk through ISC. Uh, she was obviously tweeting prolifically and going all kinds of things. And if you don't know, sign up for the CE Pro newsletter. Is it showing you in the corner there? Um, but Julie goes over quite a few things that were pretty cool. Uh, so definitely check that out. I'm going to bounce to Tim for a second because uh, as many of you know, I was unable to attend this year uh, due to two small children. Um, but Tim went there and with a boot of, of wonder, had a lot of fun. So Tim, what was the, first of all, what was the feel of this one? We already know that ISC had, I believe, a record-setting year with over 70,000 uh, attendees. 73,000 people. 73,000 people. In, in a pro AV trade show. Um, so, you know, what was the vibe? What was the feeling? And what, what are one or two things you saw that you just loved? Well, it, let's a little bit, a slight, light, slight correction here. It's it, not just um, a, a pro 
uh, AV show. Well, it, it, the CDA and, and ISC both equally own I, uh, mm-hmm. ISC. So it, it's 50% residential, 50% commercial, which is actually why I love this show. Uh, because you have the serendipitous discovery of, you know, if you're a commercial AV professional, discovering something in the residential, what, what may be marketed as residential, that may help you in your commercial and also vice versa. Um, lots of high energy. Uh, they moved to four days last year, again, four days this year. Just like last year, the fourth day, the Friday of the show was, was slightly less attended, but still, you know, pretty pretty stinking busy, uh, especially as someone like me trying to make it make your way through the aisles and, and find folks to, to interview and, and uh, you know, produce the, the content that we created last week. Um, great energy. Um, most of the folks that I talked to were very optimistic, understand the majority of them are, are going to be in the European uh, Middle Eastern market, um, but very optimistic about business this year, uh, very optimistic about, you know, the technologies that are coming out. Um, one of the things that I wrote in, in my wrap up, the, the main okay, the main one or two themes this year is everybody and their brother getting into video over IP, not point to point, not, not, you know, using a twisted pair as, as a transport for video, but honest to goodness, going through switches and networking audio and video, both, um, you know, Crestron had a, had a solution, you know, AMX now that they've integrated SVSI into their boxes has a, as a solution. Uh, our buddy Justin Kennington, who's with with Aptivision and SDVOA, they're pushing their their solution. Um, uh, uh, Paul Harris from from uh, Aurora Multimedia is actually taking their chipset and putting it into his boxes. Um, you have AVB, which is uh, Biamp has has is using AVB as, as audio and video both. So a number of folks, and I'm probably forgetting two or three folks that, that are doing it as well, but they're getting into it and they're using it as a, as a real solution, and that matters and. In, in, in residential because you know my, my house is, is not the biggest house in the world and and wouldn't qualify for this but you start getting into into houses that are 10 and twenty thousand square feet you need to start considering networking that video especially if you want to distribute it over multiple floors and in multiple rooms that's why this solution matters that's why this this technology matters um and the other thing is is control and uh, a lot of folks have come along in the last couple of years and it started integrating different parts of control. Uh, I talked with Control 4, and um, Alexa was released in the UK uh, about a week or so ago. It's a big deal for them, right? Uh, control 4 is heavily involved in, in voice and, and was talking with Amazon early on. Uh, obviously, Crestron ha- has their solution as well. A couple other folks are, are I think Sabat um, has a solution. Um, Alan has a solution. Alan's a company that is owned by uh, Core Brands. So the fact that, that Alexa is getting introduced now into the European market is a big deal. So start with video over IP, and I would say go from there. Very good. For uh, Delia or Joseph, were you able to follow along? And, and if you did, did anything stand out to you? I followed along a little bit. Um, I wish I could have gone to ISC this year. I love that show. Uh, but, you know, for the most part, I was looking for the smart home angle, less video centric. This year seemed to be hugely centered around 4K video distribution. Uh, just for me personally, I've been keeping track of things that are more for the mainstream. So although I believe that they'll come down that way, just like Tim was saying, you know, you've got a larger 20,000 square foot house. It's definitely important to you. Uh, but, you know, for the most part, you got two or three, four TVs. It's probably going to be distributed 4K at some point in time anyway. 
So um, I thought it was really cool. Um, Alexa definitely is probably the biggest one. Everything's got voice control. So that's going to be something I'm going to look out for. Including you. Including me. And I'm actually going to deliver that this year. So that is a mainstream play. So that's happening. So I heard you say Alon, Crestron, Savant, Control 4. Yes. Mm-hmm. Cool. Luxury brands. Awesome. Claire, mainstream. Very good. You know, Joe, I, able to... Go I, followed it, I followed it closely because I have a, a great deal of interest in, in who is going to win the voice control battle. You know, you're talking about the battle of titans between Amazon, Google, and Apple to see who's going to get dominance here. And I just found it interesting, Tim, that the, the only one you mentioned was Alexa. Did either Google or Apple have any kind of voice control stuff there? Well, I understand Alexa didn't have something there, right? I mean, it was it was in, it was their partners' booths. Um, so it was only in partners' booths. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just I, I think it's interesting to watch. I was curious to see what would happen in Europe because I know it was just really starting to be introduced. But I, I think this is going to be quite the fight. I'm glad I will not be in the middle of that one. So. Yeah. <laughs> It's been Very a fight good. with my engineering team as well. Same problem on our side. We, uh, the, the engineers love the integration capabilities of Google and they're like jump, chomping at the bit to do that one. And we have to be like, nope, guess what? Market's asking for Alexa. So that's the one we're going with. So yeah, this is- I, I think you have to be aware of Apple. They've been far too quiet here and they mm-hmm. need a win and they have a ton of money. I have a ton of money, so... It's- so watch out for Siri as the, as the dark horse in this race. Yeah. <laughs> this, this is a very scary one. This is like, man, we don't know who to bet on. Exactly. Right? And we're just kind of going with the one who's got the squeakiest wheel first. Well, and then let me ask you a question, Delia. Do you have to go with one? Is it, a, is it an engineering and a um, resource question? Do you have to pick one? Uh, it actually turns into a resource question more than engineering. So we definitely, well, depending on your platform. So whatever your standard platform is and how open it is for the different architecture to be able to be incorporated, no problem. But if you're, you've got, you know, 50 engineers working on stuff, you're going to have them work on the first one first and finish it. The second one, second, finish it, and then move okay. on to the third. Now, is it something where you foresee your engineering working on all three? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's the goal. Cool. So, now the, the question is, what does having three of them do to the marketplace? That's well, never been healthy for the market. Never. So the only the only interesting side of it is, I, I would take it to the the mobile market, the mo- mobile debate. Right. Are arguably, it, it's Samsung or Android, um, and Apple. Right. And they have both. They they've pushed out pretty much everybody else. Yeah. Moto still makes a phone, but I don't think anybody buys it. Windows Blackberry, phone. Yeah, there's still a Windows phone. Um, LG has some phones, but again, very few people buy them. Um, it is really over the last you know, 10, 15 years, it's dropped down into a Samsung Apple fight. Right. It's high and so, low. But here's the thing. I'll throw one more at you. And, and this, is, this, this is an odd like left field thing, right? But Richie, I'm used to this from you. I know. Richie Fergoz and I uh, stumbled upon some guys at CDA this year called Josh.ai. And they're, they're agnostic. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the smart guys. Uh, this is their second or third uh, company, uh, uh, Silicon Valley folks. Yep. They don't care. I mean, they, they, they're, they're not 
Amazon, they're not Google, they're not um, um, uh, Siri. They don't care whose control system they're they're talking to, or they could be their own. So they could talk. They could talk on top of of Claire. Um, you know, assuming that you know I, I'm not one of their engineers, but you know, assuming that all the, all the hooks are the same, um, that would be another one to just kind of watch out for. It's not you know, it's dealing is not something that you need to jump on right away, but at least you know, keep an eye on them. They have a universal translator. That's what you're saying. Yes, sir. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It is now. It's the, the downside to it is it is it all is based on uh, your smartphone, um, so that's your interface. So it does mm-hmm. voice control, or uh, they also have uh, an actual interface as well um, through, through your smartphone. But that's your that's your interface. So and they're called it, Josh AI. Josh yes. AI. Mm-hmm. Josh AI. Follow him on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, smart yeah, guys. They're, they're, great guys. they're good guys. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and, and that's the. That's the other end of the field, right? Is you have those companies that are able to dedicate the resources to multiple uh, interfaces. It, it will come down to general populist adoption, right? Right. We we as integrators will push this stuff all day long till we're blue in the face, but it'll be the guys that can walk into a Best Buy or go to Amazon or wherever they buy their product and pick up a couple of things and make them work together. And then it'll be up to us to take it to that next level based on whatever it is. But I'm going to cut it short there before Tim takes us over time again, um, like he did with his last statement. I forget whose show this is. I need a big title that says host, maybe like a chain. Don't get a chain. I'm going to get you that. Gold chain. Don't don't do that. He doesn't need that. I think just a number underneath would work. Or crown, give him a crown, a little prince no, crown, not a king crown, but a little yeah. prince crown. You know. Well, I could get a little tiara. I could do that. Yeah, you do that. I mean, it, would it hold my hair back? It's like sunglasses, right? Yeah, It'll hold my hair back. Yeah, let's do it. I'm down. All right, our our good friend George is going to cut all of that, uh-huh. all of it. Anyways, uh, thank you so much for joining us, um, Delia. Where can people connect with you? Delia underscore Hanson at Twitter. This is my handle. And uh, otherwise, I'm at Claire Controls. So let me know. Very, very good. Joe, thanks for being here. Hope you had fun. I had a blast. Excellent. Where can people connect with you and learn more about your company? You can go to rosewaterenergy.com, which is our website. And uh, if you want to communicate with me directly, you can always contact me by email, which is joepickett at rosewaterenergy.com. Very good. Tim, where can uh, people find you once you, you know, wake up and, and stop fighting jet lag? You know, I give me, give me two or three days for that. Um, <laughs> TD, Tim David Albright on the Twitters, uh, or more importantly, the, the website, which we'll, you'll tell folks about here in a second. So. I will. I will. Uh, thanks again, guys, for, for joining us on this show. For myself, you can find me on Twitter at Matt D. Scott and pretty much every other social platform. Uh, but most importantly, please stop by avnation.tv. You'll find this show and a wide variety of other shows, uh, as well as all of our coverage from ISC 2017. You'll find that. Just click the banner at the top. When you do visit the website, please make sure you take a moment to check out our underwriters. We're extremely thankful for their support and ask that you check them out and support them as well. Thank you for watching. That's all the time we have for this episode of Resi Week. 